The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. For the countless families that have called North Carolina home for centuries, the first chapter of their American story likely begins with their arrival on the Cape Fear River. In the earliest years of European development in the colony, there was only one way in and one way out. The Cape Fear River runs nearly 200 miles from the heart of what is now North Carolina all the way to its southeasternmost tip providing a natural interstate that served to bring people, resources, and influence in and out of the colony before a single road was ever built. In fact, the Cape Fear River was always vital to the trade, communication, and culture of the native people in this region, well before Europeans began colonizing it in their own image. These native people were the first to understand its role as the great connector of the many terrains and communities that have called this land home. And while so much has changed around it, the Cape Fear River is the one thing that has remained a constant, even if a journey on its back isn't quite what it used to be. Hello and welcome to Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents we are back to exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander. The historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The beloved story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie Fraser. Together, the pair land in the American colonies and North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War in the 1760s and 70s, and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. Outlander will return to stars this summer with the first half of its seventh season, making it the perfect time 
for new episodes of this podcast. For those of you who joined us for our first season of episodes, we are so thrilled to be back with you to celebrate a new season of examining the fact and fiction of Outlander. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome. On this show, we will pull characters, events, and themes from the new season and past episodes of Outlander and use them to talk about the real North Carolina history that is essential to the story of Claire and Jamie Frazier. In our first season, we talked about all kinds of stories that relate to the Outlander series, including the arrival of real Scottish Highlanders to the Cape Fear region in the colonial era. We also touched on the cruelty of the colonial justice system, the role of Native Americans and the Scottish in the Revolution, the wild stories of Flora MacDonald and Steed Bonnet, and the great sacrifices made at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. But this season, we're going to focus on exploring new topics, including the perils and promise of colonial medicine and Claire's role as a healer. We're going to talk about the history of Fort Johnston, the first fortified guardian of the Cape Fear River. And we're going to touch on the representation of slavery in Outlander and other popular culture. But for this week's season premiere, we're going to begin where so many stories did in North Carolina's earliest years, on the back of the Cape Fear River. As the only river in North Carolina with direct access to the Atlantic Ocean, the Cape Fear River was essential to the development of the colony starting first in the 1600s and in earnest in the 1700s. Like so many settlers, Claire and Jamie will use the Cape Fear River as a lifeline to the rest of North Carolina, to the community they will build in the western part of the colony at Fraser's Ridge, to the family they have at River Run, and in time, to the front lines of the American Revolution. Since season four of the series, the river has been a constant in their story, whether or not we've seen it constantly on screen. But what would such a journey on the Cape Fear have looked like 250 years ago? Today, as the river passes by Wilmington, it is lined with massive development. But for those early settlers, including the real Scottish Highlanders like the Frasers, would it have really looked and flowed that differently? We're going to answer that question and more on the season premiere of Bergwen Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. talk about the ever-changing Cape Fear River here in North Carolina, I'm joined today by Doug Springer, the co-founder of Wilmington Water Tours right here in Wilmington. Doug, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Hunter. Now, Doug, I've known you for many years now, and when we were thinking about what we wanted to cover in this new season of Outlander in the Cape Fear, it felt only natural to cover the Cape Fear River because that is what Claire and Jamie Fraser in Outlander and so many real Scottish Highlanders are going to first encounter when they arrive here in the Wilmington area in the colonial period. And so it felt right to kind of talk about what they would have seen, how things have changed, and you are the perfect person to do this because you spend your days on the Cape Fear River. Can you tell people a little bit about your history working on the river? 
Sure. I mean, in a nutshell, you know, I lived here early on in the 70s and went to school on the river in the marine technology program at the community college. That was really my first introduction, but really didn't get hooked on it until we moved back about 19 years ago and found a house on the Northeast Cape Fear. And one thing led to the next. The connection got heavier and heavier, stronger and stronger. And uh, one day I saw my little boat sitting in the river and I said, Diane, let's put her to work. So we started uh, uh, a tour business, you know, focused on the Northeast Cape Fear. And then that grew into what we have today with Wilmington Water Tours. And Diane is your lovely wife who I work with when I work with you. And uh, if our listeners are ever in Wilmington and and come down and take cruises on the Cape Fear, uh, Wilmington Water Tours is right there uh, at the just right near the foot of Orange Street. And this summer, we're actually doing some some tours with you. So we're going to bring Outlander to Wilmington Water Tours and um, really get to the heart of what you and and your co-founder started, which was a tour business on the river that really focuses on the history, on the ecology of the river, and really educates people on all different aspects of what they're seeing when they're out on the water. That's one of the things that we've learned, that the ecology and the history are just, they co-mingle. They exist because of each other. And um, I think what we really try to do is help people paint that picture and see what it was like when we are referring to a certain time in her history. And when the light goes off, you can tell it. Yeah, you can see people really start to connect with it when you're on your on the actual boat. And, and that's what we're going to try and do here today to try to give Outlander fans and our listeners a good idea of what the river and this area would have looked like when people like Claire and Jamie Frazier would have been passing through in the second half of the 18th century. And so I think my first question is, you know, in the Outlander series, we see Claire and Jamie arrive in Wilmington in 1767. What would that journey have been like from the mouth of the Cape Fear River, which empties out into the Atlantic Ocean, all the way up to what is now Wilmington? Well, it would have been different than it is today. Uh, The river has changed so much, mainly because uh, of the dredging and deepening of the river. When uh, they would have entered into the mouth of the river, it would have been, you know, shifting sands. It would have been different every time they came through. When Nathaniel Moore first saw it, you know, one of the first uh, English explorers to come, and he walked upon the Cape Fear River, he thought it was a big lake. It was like a big, wide, shallow bay and uh, averaging about 15 foot deep. And then as you came up the river, about halfway up, was an area called the Flats. And in 1662, that's when William Hilton came up the river exploring this area, encountered the Flats. That's basically as far as he could go. So he had to even stop and offload ballaststone and eventually continue his way up the river. And that's where the English finally came back and tried to establish Charleston in you know 1664 because that was a natural stopping place. So the point is it would have been shallow, you probably would have traversed the edges of the river. That would have been your channel. So it would have been much more social contact going along the edge of the river. The currents would be non-existent because you hadn't deepened the river. We went from about a two-foot tide to almost a five-foot tide twice a day on the average due to that deepening. So that facet alone would have been very different. And with those increased currents, you have a lot more runoff from the Piedmont where you have the red clays being introduced into the river. So it would have been a very dark, clear river, you know, kind of like our black rivers. So it would have been quite different. 
And that's really, you know, really interesting to think about because we, we see our characters in the show on the river a little bit. Now, obviously, they're shooting it in Scotland, so they're not actually on the real Cape Fear River here in our area, but they are moving in a way that would have been very similar. You know, they're moving upriver. We don't see them arrive in Wilmington. We just catch up with them after they've already gotten here. But we eventually do follow them up the Northeast Cape Fear River, which I do want to talk to you about. But, you know, what was the primary function of the Cape Fear River in those early colonial days? Obviously, it was to bring people in, but I have to imagine that there was an economic value to it. There was a transportative value to it that we just don't see today to that degree. Yeah, absolutely, Hunter. You know, people ask me, what's the biggest difference I see on the river, you know, today compared to, you know, the 1800s, late 1700s? And it's actually the number of people on it. Back then, it would have been, Wilmington would have been a hustling seaport, you know, not only using it as our first highway into North Carolina, you know, up into what's now the Cross Creek area, but commerce would have been booming. You know, you would have been floating rafts of timber down the river, barrels of turpentine and tar. That was the main economic engine, you know, those products, even more so than the rice that came into play later on that was grown, you know, throughout this area. Well, and the transient population of Wilmington today comes in through our our interstates. They come over the bridges. But in the colonial period, they were coming up the Cape Fear River to a, to a very large degree that is really hard for us to kind of fathom today. You know, you you spend most of your days on the river. What kind of traffic do you see today? Do you see just recreational and then some, you know, a bit south of us to the port? I mean, today, definitely so much of the commercial traffic has shifted down, you know, to the ports and almost all of the really commercial traffic, except a couple of large ships come up and go through Wilmington, maybe once a month. But um, it is recreational. The commercial traffic is becoming more and more like ours, you know, more tour businesses, et cetera. And then the, you know, the kayakers and the people trying to explore, you know, Eagles Island and those things. So we see more and more and more of that, uh, which to me is really encouraging. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that there wouldn't have been a current at the time. Today, what is the current like to deal with as someone who is a captain on the river? I mean, it's it's pretty strong. It's significant. I mean, you know, we we can run from, you know, two to three knots, uh, you know, twice a day in both directions. And uh, I had I had this one sailor come in a few years ago. He just completed a circumnavigation. I went down. He couldn't figure out how to get tied up and the currents were just killing him. You know, so (laughs) they uh, they can be challenging, but you can definitely use them to your advantage like anything. You know, the kayakers learn to watch the tide tables and uh, we do as well. And that would have been to their advantage at the time. They're not going to have the electric motors that we do today. So would it have been a bit easier to navigate the Cape Fear River when you're not hustling against some of those currents? Well, you know, it would have been different. The, um, you know, there were tides, and but they were slight in nature. But it was very important because in Wilmington at that time, this was a freshwater system. With the increased tides and dredging, now it's pretty darn salty. I mean, we have bottlenose dolphin in, we have sea turtles. So it would have been, you know, freshwater two-foot tides, which was very important because it was a source of energy to allow them to move up and down the river with some help, but also to irrigate with. Um, I've talked to people that their ancestors remember walking across the river in Fayetteville, you know, and it would change. If it was a really flood condition, it could be worse than it is now. 
but most of the time it would be something that you could probably pull a raft up river against that current, uh, use it you know to your advantage when you could. Uh, it was a very curvy river, and most of the curves have been taken out of the river as well. So you would have been kind of like on the Mississippi. You would have been going around one curve after the next. And a lot of those are still in existence. They've just cut them off. And one of the things we like to show people, we're trying to get them to imagine and see what the river was like, is we come up the river and you can look into one of those curves. It's like looking into a time capsule. You can really see what that river looked like. The big cypress trees growing along the banks, you know, just very narrow. So, yeah, it's uh, it has changed. And I know that it changed on a daily basis back then, just like it does now. So, you know, in the colonial period, what kind of daily changes would they have to face? You know, they're not going to see the massive ship liners that we do that are going to the port. What kind of things were they dodging on the Cape Fear River? Well, they had to, I would think, be very careful of, you know, like flood conditions, you know, what they call a fresh net. When the water comes in and comes down the river, it would have come very quickly and very hard because now we have three dams on the river that buffer that when we need to. When it was a, a bad storm came in inland or something like that, they would have probably had to run for the high, high ground. You know, it could have been really rough. Other days, it could have been very, very mellow. You could have pulled up, probably averaging, you know, 12 foot deep going up the river, maybe, you know, 8 to 12 foot. So, um, yeah, it would have been more variable in some ways, but kinder in others. You did mention that certain, you know, curves, certain corners of the Cape Fear River today do really harken back. They haven't changed that much. You can really get a glimpse into the past there. And one of those places is the Northeast Cape Fear River, which we do see Claire and Jamie actually on early in season four. They're headed up to River Run to see Aunt Jocasta. It's where they unfortunately have a run in with Stephen Bonnet. But the Northeast Cape Fear River is something that you're very uh, attuned to, something that you know very well. You live on it. And so why is that portion of the river still kind of reminiscent of what it would have looked like 250 some years ago? Well, the Northeast Cape Fear is not the one that would have gone in into the interior of North Carolina. So they probably would have taken what is now considered the main branch, which would have been, not to confuse you too much, would have been the Brunswick River. You would have come up from Southport. You would have had to go up the Brunswick River. Um, the, the area in front of Wilmington was very, very shallow. However, to your point, the Northeast Cape Fear is probably looks more like the main branch than the main branch looks today because they did not channelize it. And it's, it's in its natural riverbed, very much so. Um, and once you get up about six miles, you really start getting into the fresh water much quicker. So you have the big cypress trees growing on the banks. Um, you have the clear, darker water because it is a black river. So if I were going to do filming here, I would probably film on the Northeast Cape Fear and tell everybody I was going up the main branch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, to that point, why has that changed over time? Why do we travel north in different channels and in different places than they would have at the time? Well, the river was very shallow, as I mentioned. So it actually, it took William Hilton, who came here in 1662, one of the first English explorers to come here and really document what he was seeing for us. He really painted the picture. It took him two voyages to realize that the Northeast Cape Fear was not the main branch of the river. 
It, it just seemed to be that way. Finally, he anchored his ship, the Adventure, below Eagles Island, saw some driftwood coming down this other tributary, rode up that river, which is now the Brunswick River, and discovered, oh my gosh, there's a main, another bigger branch of this river going into the interior of North Carolina. So it was somewhat hidden. And then when Wilmington did become a seaport, uh, when, you know, in the time period you're talking about, they put the customs house here, uh, it no longer made any sense to turn around and send people back down river six miles and up the Brunswick. So they actually dug what they called a thoroughfare through Eagles Island and connected with the Cape Fear River on the other side of Eagles Island. And that was the rerouting of the river. So the, you know, what, what we've done over time is almost unimaginable. And that's why so many people have trouble imagining what it did look like. You know, it blows them away when you say this was all land, but this is now where it's been dug through. But that's uh, also part of the fun of it. Well, yeah, because you're getting to see a town's growth. You're getting to see how this area has functioned differently over time as technology has changed, as our understanding of navigation has changed. And yet you still kind of have these pieces of the past, these these larger channels. You know, this is still the path that so many real Scottish Highlanders actually traveled to get up this area. There just might have been different bends and different pathways that truly brought them to this area. And so we don't see too much time spent on the water in the Outlander books or the TV show, but it is so essential to that time period in this area. Wilmington was built because of the advantages of the Cape Fear River. And so it, it remains such a huge part of our area today. It just looks and functions a bit differently. Is there anything that surprises you about how much everything has changed? Things that still kind of amaze you? I know you've spent many years on the river, but, you know, we all get used to certain things. And then someday it just clicks again that, wow, this is kind of amazing that I'm still seeing this. You know, it it really does happen quite often. It's like... um. I remember one time, like talking about how the Brunswick River used to be the main branch of the river. And uh, I came up and I went down the Brunswick River and there was a huge log jam after a storm. And I just, it just did not make sense to me why it was there, how it got there. So the next big storm, I went ahead and made a point to go up there while the water was running really, really hard. You know, that river coming down from Raleigh and Fayetteville and the natural flow of the river was the Brunswick, and that's where the water went. It tried to follow Mother Nature's path, more of a north-south path. It's almost like our, you know, it's kind of like our floodgate for Wilmington. People wonder why we don't get as much water in downtown Wilmington as we do, um, but it's that Brunswick River and Mother Nature trying to get back to the way she was going. And when I saw that, it was just like, well, why didn't I see that before, you know? And so, and taking people out on the river, like uh um, I remember taking uh, the mayor of uh, Navassa out and Ulysses Willis, an amazing guy. He's written a great book on Navassa, but we went out and spent the day on the river and he really hadn't been on the river. And when we got back, he said, I didn't know my town was so big. You know, when he realized that it was the river, that was, that's what put Navassa there. And those were the bounds of his, of his township. So experiences like that are just, you know, they, when I see somebody else's eyes open, it, it also is, it makes me feel good. And you and I have traveled on several cruises. You took me up really pretty far up the Northeast Cape Fear River. And it is really illuminating as someone who works with history every day to see just how different a landscape the river can be just a few miles north of where we are. You see just 
nothing but trees and water. In the summer, which is when I believe we took the Northeast tour that you gave me, it was just really green and it was really wide. And, and I was thinking about that when you mentioned just a, a few minutes ago that they would travel on kind of the edges of the river. And, and today we kind of travel down right the heart of it. But why would they travel down the edges? What, what, what would be the advantage of it? Well, if you and I was talking about, you know, downriver where it averages, you know, like a mile and a half across, it's very much like a big bay. And so you would have um, been working your way up the edges, the early explorers looking for the for the tributaries like Town Creek. And that's where they decided to try to build Charleston. Um, so you would have been really exploring what are the resources along the edges? Where's the high ground? Where's the places that you could potentially plant certain crops like rice, et cetera? The center of the river was, um, you know, it wasn't any deeper. It wasn't channelized. So to me, it would just make sense to really explore the edges. And then once the plantations and people started settling, they were your neighbors. You could, it was very social. You know, you could see them out there, you know, planting their crops or, you know, setting up dinner under the shade tree and getting your uh, little boat and row on over there and get a free meal. But they did socialize. And, you know, you would have been traveling along the edges um, more than not. Very seldom do I think you would cross the mile and a half to go see somebody else, you know. But to me, one of the pictures that uh, it was uh, in the Sprunk Chronicles is, and they were talking about sitting at Orton Plantation, you know, in the evening. And it was so quiet and so calm that even the, that they could hear the breakers on the beach breaking from Orton Plantation, you know, it, and the water would have been clear. It would have been bounding with fish and, you know, birds and game. Um, you know, you would have to be drawn to it. It would be such a significant resource. So, um, you know, I, I, if I could get in that time machine that they have, I would definitely, you know, take one trip back there to see it and feel it and smell it. Oh, there's a lot of things that we would love to do if we could pass through the stones, like Claire and Brianna and Roger. You know, as, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about when you've mentioned Charleston uh, a few times, just for our listeners, that is not the one in South Carolina. It's actually one that predates it. That was an attempt here on the Cape Fear River in the 1660s. And so there was a lot of exploration. There was a lot of attempted development beyond some of the, the you know, successful development that we know today. What would the risk have been like for those early explorers to come up an unknown waterway? I mean, a lot of areas have to be explored for the first time, but well before you have the arrival of Scottish Highlanders and, and people like Claire and Jamie, what was the risk of coming up a river like this and not knowing what was ahead of you? The earliest explorers really had to be brave. I mean, if you think about it, and that's one of the reasons the early explorers stayed to the river, especially the English. The French and Spanish, they were more the woodsmen and we'd get off and, you know, go into the into the woods and, you know, interface with the uh, Native Americans much more than the English ever did. But, you know, just think about it. I mean, just getting through the mouth of that inlet could have been extremely treacherous. You probably couldn't swim anyways. Most of them weren't swimmers. So you were like, you know, that boat you you heavily depended upon it floating and you staying on it, you know. But um, it would have also been so rewarding. I mean, to see places beyond your, your wildest imagination. You know, there were times that some of the explorers talked about, you know, 
the sky being darkened with you know parakeets and waterfowl, uh, having to stand behind a tree because of a herd of deer running by. Um, it was just you know bounding with wildlife. So that would be the the reward part, you know, and then I think it would make you want to even risk more and explore further and further. It's addicting to feel like you've seen something for the first time, you know, and, and in a way, when you go up to those more northern parts of the river and and you go up through some of those tributaries that aren't, you know, right in the heart of downtown Wilmington, you do feel like you're seeing things that have never been seen before because there's nothing around. It feels like you are kind of glimpsing the past, and and that's what's fun about traveling the river today. Now, as we've talked about, the river functions differently today. It flows differently. You move around it differently. But does it still play, as someone who spends their days on it, does it still play as integral a part to this area's history? And, and do you foresee it continuing to play an important role in this area? I sure hope it does. And I hope it's one that, you know, can... Uh, be done in a way that preserves the river. Uh, people become connected with it. You know, they want to feel it's theirs and make it their own. One of the things I, I try to I tell people is that, and, and I, I got to tell you, when I was in school, I was, I think I missed the day they taught English and history in, in you know, in school, high school, because it, I wasn't academic in that way. But I'll tell you, looking and trying to imagine what it looked like um, and to take yourself there it really makes it living history and you just want to learn more. And one of the things I tell people is like everywhere you look, you're going to see a reminder of our history. But if you'll squint your eyes and look a little bit closer, you're going to see an opportunity for the future. And I hope the opportunities they see are not just a bunch of high rises. I hope there are opportunities that will create jobs for our kids and generations to come. I hope there are opportunities that will help us, you know, restore the river. We've made some great progress. You know, we've got fish passages built on the river now. We've, we're, we're doing some great things, but we, we've got a long way to go, but it's doable. And my hope and expectation is that it's going to happen. I really do believe. I believe once we really embrace waterborne transportation again with a full-blown water taxi system where you fly into the airport, get on a boat in Smith Creek, and never get in a car, that's going to happen again. But we can't lose sight of it. And we have to keep grooming the next generation to understand that vision, make it to their own, and make it real. And so that is, I would say, a big part of my passion, looking for that next person, you know, that will do that. Well, and every every person that comes to take a tour with you could be that next person that loves, you know, what they've learned on that tour. And I work for a, a historic site. It, it is built history, but there is nothing like going to a historic site and learning about its history. And the Cape Fear River is a historic site. It is a natural historic site. It is a very big historic site, but it has quite the story to tell. And um, Doug, you're, you're doing it every day. And so I appreciate the work you're doing. And, and I'm excited that we're going to be doing some Outlander on the Cape Fear tours this year. And if people are interested in taking uh, one of your tours on the Wilmington, they can visit wilmingtonwatertours.net. There's all kinds of tours. You do history tours. You do ecological tours. You kind of do it all, don't you? We try to do a lot of things because we are trying to build our business on repeat business. So we want to do a bunch of different things. And I will let people know that if you want to do one of the Outlander uh, trips with us, 
they better make their reservation now because there's so much interest in that. So, of course, we can add more and more and more of them. But if you want to get on, go ahead and do it as soon as you can. <laughs> Absolutely. And Doug, you will be um, on the boat and I will be helping host it with you. We're going to touch on the Outlander angle of it. We're going to touch on the river and the ecological angle of it. And so those who take those tours and really any of the tours that you offer, they're very well-rounded and you'll get some incredible views and some really, really fascinating history. Doug, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about something I know you hold very dearly, the Cape Fear River. And so I appreciate your time. Oh, Hunter, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you on the boat. That's it for the season premiere of Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with new episodes every two weeks this summer as the new season of Outlander unspools on stars. In our next episode, we will cover a local revolutionary fort that figures prominently into the Season 7 premiere. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Berguin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at the Berguin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site that will expose you to a fascinating history of North Carolina in colonial America. And while you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear region, which is now available in our gift shop. And be sure to follow the Berguin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, join our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. And thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Durable Restoration Company for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we would also like to take a moment to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.